Hello and welcome to the History of Internal Communication podcast. My name is Joe Chip and I'm a research fellow at the Brunel Business School. In this podcast series, I will be exploring the history of a profession that's often assumed to be a recent innovation, but which actually has its roots in the late 19th century. My work is part of a project funded by the Economic and Social Research Council called An Institutional History of Internal Communication in the United Kingdom. Today, we are lucky to be joined by two distinguished guests. We're joined by Jenny Davenport, a trailblazer in the realm of industrial democracy during the transformative 1970s. Jenny also played a vital role in the development of the postgraduate diploma. Joining us alongside Jenny is Liz Cochran, the course director of the master's programme, Liz also played a pivotal role in the master's creation. In this month's podcast episode, we'll delve into the stories, insights and experiences of Jenny and Liz, exploring their journey, the challenges they faced and the lasting impact they've had on internal communication. The first thing that would be good for listeners to know is a bit about your background and how you got into internal communication, because one of the themes we've found is with almost all of our guests is that people didn't set out to be working in internal communication, but have found themselves in there. So should I start since I started earlier, I think, than Liz? So um, I started in internal communication, um, I suppose, in 1975, at my first job, I... Um, I went to the, what was in those glorious days called the Women's Appointments Board at university to get a job when I was about to graduate and talked about what I was interested in, which was about the thing that upset me when all the temp jobs I'd done when I'd been a student was the sort of waste of human potential at work and how, how um, much time and effort was wasted and how many talented people weren't given a voice and had jobs that weren't fit for them. So anyway, I went and poured all this out to the nice woman at the Women's Appointments Board. And she said, you must go and work at the Industrial Society. I will ring John Garnet." So she did. And I started there on the 1st of June that year and was put into the communication department. And this was the Industrial Society, which was a, um, a voluntary organisation, but um, governed by a council of senior people from industry and unions. It was very much a, a two-sided organisation in those days with the aim of um, improving working life and improving relationships at work. And um, so I was, I was put into the communication department, which is um, where I started my career. And was the Industrial Society something you'd heard of before then? Or I'm ashamed to say I hadn't, no. Yes, yeah, so, okay, so, so yes, it was news to you at that point, yeah. Oh, thanks very much, Amy. Yeah, what about you then, Liz? Okay, so for, for me, um, I started my career um, with the, in, within the um, utility sector um, and um, I was working for what was in those days called the Central Electricity Generating Board. I was a graduate trainee and I was you know, sort of mainly attached to the communication department. And so I got into sort of all aspects of, of corporate communication, really. And, you know, I started mainly really on a combination of press work and then community relations as well. Um, and I moved from there to London Electricity. And at that stage, I started to get involved in internal communication. Um, again, I was mainly focusing on other aspects of, of comms, but I was responsible for the staff newspaper in, um, in those days. Um, and then from there and I you know I enjoyed that and I I enjoyed the whole sort of sense of making sure that people were knowing what was going on in the the organization but from there I moved to Glaxo as it was then Glaxo manufacturing um, within the UK and I'd start with I was at one factory at Ware in Hertfordshire, and I thought I'd gone to help them with their community relations mainly. But when I arrived, they said, well, actually, we've got a culture change programme going, and so we want you to be helping with, with that, focusing on that. 
and as well as the the other aspects and so I found myself getting involved in really a change program that was around going from a much more typically autocratic way of managing to something that was much more participative and involving and putting in place different channels, first of all, to make sure that people really did know what was going on. And so again, I started to have a staff newspaper. Um, I had, um, and and we developed um, a team briefing system and I was also, um, I, took a, a key role in setting up a consultative committee so people could really have a voice in different things that were happening um, there. And as a result of all of that, then the organisation was able to start to set up quality circles and really get people, you know, connected with thinking about how can we actually make our working places better and sort of connecting with each other as well. We were doing a lot of lateral communication about you know, ideas that were working and so on across the piece. And from there, I went on to, um, I, I did that sort of at where and then ended up responsible for communication across sort of manufacturing um, across the, um, the, the UK as a whole. And then I moved into training and consultancy and actually initially with the industrial society because Jenny and I had worked together by that stage on various things um I got Jenny involved in different um in running focus groups for example in the um in the 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 organization um and so I was doing that and gradually then that morphed into getting involved in the um what was then the postgrad diploma but then became the masters and again I think Jenny can take the lead on what that um what that the journey of that qualification really mm. and I suppose yeah going back to with uh, Jenny's uh, kind of entry into the industrial society and at that time, obviously, industrial uh, democracy was kind of a quite a key theme. So one thing I was kind of interested in is how you think that sort of translates into things we've got today, maybe like employee voice. Do you think it has kind of uh, gradually evolved into different themes and in internal communication or were quite different things a priority back then, do you think? I think that it varied. So I think there was a big theme in internal communication then, which has been in a way, I would say a sort of dead end, although you never know, it might get might rise up again, um, which was very much related to industrial democracy and which was all about the education of um, people who would be involved with co-decision making. Mm. So this was partly for worker directors when there was the whole idea of having worker directors, but also this was a time when unions had enormous power in organizations and um, it, it became, and through negotiations, through threats of industrial action, they, unions had enormous amount of power. And the idea was that if you educated the workforce into understanding what the issues facing the organization were, they would be more, um, more informed union members and would, be more likely to encourage their representatives to have far-sighted views rather than just going for a bit more money today. Mm. And and so that one of the, I, I wrote a book when I suppose about 1976 with a, with a man who had been a senior manager, I think in ICI, um, called Explaining the Financial Facts. And the whole idea of this was, these people have got power anyway, let's make sure that at least they're well informed. Mm. And it was you know, explaining what, what profits were. A lot of the work I was doing in, in, in that first stint at the Industrial Society between 1975 to eight was all about how do you communicate finance to employees? 
because it's important they understand this stuff so that they um, aren't necessarily um, taken in by trade union leaders who are trying to um, say profits are a bad thing so people need to understand what profits were and um, so as I say the industrial society was a two-sided body so it it wasn't just for the employers it was also for the union so that they had better informed members not asking not asking for things that that didn't make sense and so that they could have more informed discussions about what would going to be in the workers interests mm. so but so as I say that was one big theme um, which I sort of think has sort of died the death a bit in some ways, unfortunately, because I don't think that there's much idea now that that you need to. I mean, it was sort of about educating our masters was the sort of idea behind it was that these people can have power. We better make sure that at least they understood what on earth was going on. Mm. So, but that, so that was one theme that I think hasn't much got much progeny. But the other was very much what continues to be um drive a lot of internal communication which was um not just about having people understand what the issues facing the organization were but also um giving them some voice in that mm. um and that was the whole idea of involvement was incredibly important to the industrial society so the idea that people were involved in their work. So that was partly really understanding what it was they were doing, how it was contributing. So in, in those days, there was no communication at all. So I remember talking to someone in a in a bike factory about what he was making. And he said, well, he didn't really know and he didn't really care. He just, he, you know, this is just what he did. Um, so it was, it was partly involvement so that people could get some more pride and pleasure in their work. But it was also so that they would, um, there was also a whole aspect of it that was about having a voice, partly through consultative committees, which Liz has already mentioned. Mm -hmm. Although, and they really, I don't think they ever worked terribly well at involving anyone other than the members of the consultative committee. So it was great if you were a member of the consultative committee, you got to know what was going on and you got your voice. But there was, it was a fairly, tortuous route from someone having an objection or an idea or a way of looking at things mm -hmm. to get to their rep to present it at the consultative committee was was a bit of a tortuous route but but that was an important campaign to make sure that they worked well um and talked about real issues not the, the classic tea and toilets mm -hmm. and that was part of the reason to get better communication to employees was that they would be better informed so they'd have things they wanted to talk about that weren't just tea and toilets. And then there was um, the idea as well that um, team meetings should be held, not just for team briefing, which was briefing groups, as it was called in those days, which is where employees got told what was going on in the organisation. But the idea as well was that the managers should talk about local things with the employees and, and that would be more of a discussion. So it would be more a case of, you know, so-and-so's going off on maternity leave next next month. What should we, how should we, let's think about how we're going to get the work done otherwise, what do we need to do? Or um, So a lot about progress locally, but, but the opportunity for people to get involved with um, discussing immediate work issues as a team. So, so so I suppose the, the the two big themes when I was at the Industrial Society in the late 70s were the whole business from, well, that was the particular campaign I was given was about explaining finance to people. But the big thing we did was sell briefing groups, and the, which was difficult. I, uh, you know, so that I remember going to the finance, no, the, the personnel director as was then called, and the top team of a large industrial conglomerate. And they said, uh, you know, you're here to talk to us about briefing groups. Um, I'm, 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 we don't need them. We, we really don't need any of this stuff. Um, we don't need any internal communication. I'm on first name terms with the trade union official and anything we want to organize 
I just talked to them. They were on very good terms. And um, we found that people don't really want to know anything about the organization they work in. They only, they're only here for their pay packets. Mm. So that was that, and that was that was very typical of what people were thinking in those days, and it was a, a big campaign of the industrial societies to try to get people to think a bit differently about internal communication, which clearly was um, successful because certainly you know sort of the work I was doing, which was um, I think in the mid to late eighties, there was a real commitment by the management team to be really making sure both that people were really well informed and also that there was kind of targeted listening taking place as well. So the consultative committee that we had, you know, um, that was both for senior management to be raising key issues of concern and getting input. And we actually trained all of our reps to consult. So we trained them in consultative techniques and they'd go out and they'd talk to people in their constituency and come back. And the sorts of issues we'd tackle would be things like there was a problem with absenteeism. Well, what should the organisation be doing about it? And actually, some of the um, the suggestions that came back from people were far more draconian than anyone in senior management had ever been thinking about, because, you know, they'd been thinking, oh, people are going to, uh, you know, sort of rebel against this, whereas people were feeling we don't like other people swinging the leg. But then there were also the opportunity for people to come up with ideas. And so, for example, there was one idea that came up about, well, could we have a company crash on the premises? And with that one, there was actually a working party set up of people who went out and did loads of data gathering to look at whether this made sense or not. In the end, for various reasons, it didn't. But there was that real desire to listen. Um, and then, of course, it was the quality circles, which was uh, uh, was around people suggesting improvements in the workplace, in their own workplace. That was really, you know, sort of providing that that bottom line benefit in particular to the organisation. So I'd say that I mean, I think that. Um, Glaxo was probably um, further along the line than many organisations at, at that time. And we did work closely with the Industrial Society on what we were doing. But, you know, certainly it, there were organisations that were really taking it forward. But that was 10 years later, too. And that it was, was also was. that was also yeah. partly the result of, as you said at the beginning of your um, piece, the, the, the result of the success in a way. And, and uh, John Garnett, who was the director of, of the Industrial Society, was very active in tramping the country with the with the message that you needed to you needed to communicate internally. So I, I think it it did change. It it changed from the early. It gradually gradually changed, as Liz says. By the late eighties, it was a completely different environment. The name of our project isn't a history of internal communication, but an institutional history of internal oh, okay. communication. And I guess that's the key thing with the word institutional is that we were interested in how these ideas didn't just get suggested as new ideas, but how they became institutionalised so that people actually expect things to be done in a certain way. And I think what you're saying there is that John Garnett was quite an important figure in getting certain ideas institutionalised so people were expecting certain types of communication to happen, which at the start of his time, actually, they, they were new ideas, but actually by the end, people kind of took it for granted that he should be trying to communicate with employees. And I think by the time he retired in 1986, the, the world had moved on and, and that wasn't any it wasn't a campaign anymore when i was when i was there in the early, in the 70s it was a campaign by the by the mid 80s the industrial society was campaigning on different topics because the yeah. that essential message that internal communication is a good idea was one by then it was, it was running training courses as well wasn't on things like uh, certain methods because i guess it was taken for granted that i guess uh, companies would want to know how to do these methods so rather than campaigning for people to do them I think, was it more of a case then that 
training people in because there was yes and yeah. and and a lot of work um finding best practice and promulgating it mm. so you know so so we'd get people say how do i do how do i do briefing groups in a continuous process and we'd have found someone who'd found a way of doing it by bringing in the shift earlier and whatever they'd done so we, we it was partly um which it had always been a repository of good practice but it but as the campaigning as that campaign they went on to run campaigns about lots of other things which was a big campaign about women and women and things like that that wasn't they didn't stop campaigning but the the campaign on internal communication was one and as you say we then moved on more to the, the, how to do it rather than you might think about doing it in the first place yeah. <laughs> and yeah actually it'd be interesting to know more about the briefing group as well because uh with our research we've got the impression that that's more than just a new type of communication but also a bit of a fundamental shift because uh I, the earlier methods are more about disseminating information uh from the top downwards and then the briefing group allows more of a two-way dialogue and do you think it was seen that way at the time or uh, no, it wasn't. It wasn't really seen as a two-way dialogue. It was more the the point. The what what signalled out briefing groups from previous communication was that it was the main difference was that it was at the company's time, not your own time. So if you chose to take home the house newspaper, if you chose on your way to lunch to read the notice boards. You know that was your on your time, and and no one had made any effort to. They made it available to you, but they didn't make any effort, as it were, to, to yeah. at their own expense. They didn't think it, looked at didn't think it was important enough to take you off your work for you to learn this stuff. And the whole point about briefing groups was that it was important enough, and and that it was worth good money that you paid people good money to be at work. And one of the things you did was have briefing groups, and that was a good because communication is so important, that was a good use of people's time. So that, I suppose, was the most fundamental and shocking for, for people like the people I was talking to aspect of that that we were trying to do with briefing groups. The idea at the time, and it changed with team briefing as it, the, it morphed, I can't remember when, sometime in the mid-80s, early 80s, I think, they changed the name from team briefing groups to team briefing. And that was partly to represent a, a change of emphasis so that initially briefing groups, John Garnett always said that the idea came from O groups in the army, which Montgomery had started during during the war, um, which were actually discussion groups. I mean, they were they were interestingly not like briefing groups at all. They were they were entirely discussion groups. Um, but the idea of briefing groups was that you got told what was going on. And there was an opportunity for questions, and it was very important that there were the mechanisms in the organization to answer any questions. But the idea absolutely was not to discuss the company policy. So if there was a briefing group item that says, you know, the company is going to invest so many pounds in a new machine that's going to be put into the next shop to you, um, you could say, you know, why, or you could say, how big is it going to be, or when's it going to, you could ask any questions you like, but it was, the whole idea of briefing groups was that you didn't discuss whether it was a good idea or not, mm. so that on, the, on the good grounds that no one in the room could do anything about it anyway. <laughs> so, yeah. so you know, it was, it, you could see that people weren't mad about spending time paying people to hang around and discuss something they couldn't make any effect on, so that the discussion aspects of it was confined to the input from the local supervisor or manager who was running the session. So that, so that the, the idea of the briefing group was that it, it comprised in a way two halves, one half of which was the telling people what was going on in the organization, which they otherwise wouldn't know. And the other half was um, telling them about what was going on locally and talking about performance figures, for example, which people often didn't no, they were, it was not thought, no one had thought of giving people the quality figures or the production figures or um, wastage figures or whatever. So it's partly talking, giving people information about local issues, but also at that stage, which people could affect, there were people in the room who could make a difference to those things, then that bit was discussed about. 
but the but the the, the it wasn't even a half as visible. A third would have been the local stuff. The, initially, the idea was to tell people what was going on in the organisation, what the plans were, and how it was doing. Mm, that's very interesting. So, yeah, the initial emphasis then wasn't really so much on creating a two-way dialogue, but was no. on uh, trying to add greater importance to the information by having it on company time and everyone present, uh, rather than. Yes, it was telling people that we think it, yeah, no, they weren't interested in people's ideas. Well, so the idea was, there was a whole cycle we used to talk about. So the whole idea was that you needed to have consultative committees at the same time as you had briefing groups. So that there was no point a bunch of people sitting around the shop floor talking about whether it was a good idea to invest in this machine next door, because there was no one in the room who could affect that. Yeah. But one of them there would be the representative who could go off and to the consultative committee, which is why that cycle was so important. And there they could talk about what they thought. And there would be in the room then the factory director or whoever it would be who would be able to make a decision about that. So, so the idea was that the briefing group was feeding people the information but it wasn't there to talk to talk about the big decisions but it was giving people the information so that they could talk to their reps who would then be at the meetings at which the big the big matters could be discussed but it was absolutely not and it was a very very important principle of team briefing that there was no general discussion about about um stuff that was not related to the not couldn't be affected by the people in the room. Then moved on and changed because by the time that I was you know, really getting involved in internal communication, certainly, you know, in the environment I was working, that you know, more listening approach was was, you know, including, you know, because we I um we put in various different forms of opportunities to be listening to people, and that included, you know, sort of a a more way, more two-way team briefing briefing process together with various other um, mechanisms for really being able to um, hear people. Um, a lot of that was around that additional clarification, etc. And um, but but then at a local level, as I've explained, there was very much this desire that people could be, you know, really improving their work, local workplaces. Oh, yeah, that's interesting then to see how it's kind of evolved gradually over time. Yeah. And so part of the rationale for changing the name from briefing groups to team briefing was to move the emphasis for you just sitting there and listening to what was going on, albeit with a chance always to ask questions. And there was always a mechanism for answering questions. And it was always important that, that anyone doing a team briefing knew how to who to take the questions to and, and so forth. Um, mm -hmm. But the emphasis then moved being more about the team and what we could do better and so forth as as, as was part of the emphasis to moving it to mm. call, calling it team briefing rather than briefing groups. Yeah. Oh yeah, thanks very much. And obviously the other kind of uh, theme that you've both been involved in is the education side. So it'd be interesting to talk about that too in this uh, interview then. And um, yeah, I suppose in particular Liz has been involved in that. So it might be interesting to hear a bit about uh, the origins of education and professional training and accreditation and where they kind of originated with the Industrial Society and then obviously got the Institute of Internal Communication that you've been involved with as well. Yeah. Well, in fact, I think, um, again, once again, Jenny's um, exper experience and input stretches back further than mine, though I did getting involved with the, the idea of the postgraduate diploma um, at a a very early stage, but I remember it was um, you that actually suggested to me, Jenny, that, ah, there's this group of people that have had this idea, a group of senior practitioners that have had this, this, um, this, this idea, and, you know, are you interested? And I certainly was. So, Jen, you, I think you should start that, that story. Yeah, so it starts, and I'm trying to remember when, so it starts. I think it was start, about 95, 96. No, it was a, no that's, the whole story starts a lot earlier. The whole story okay. starts in about 1991, I think, okay. when Pat Hedges, who we're still in touch with and who's, who was became the first director of the course and who made the course. And she did the all of the initial work and um, 
she 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 made the the old postgraduate diploma. She but she at the time was director of training and communication or something at the Parcel Force. Yeah. And Frank Nigriello, who was then director of communications at Unipart. IBM, I think. No, no, he moved oh. to I, he may moved later to Unipart. I think it was IBM then. And a chap from BT who moved out from it very quickly, whose name I now can't remember. But anyway, they all they they had formed a group of these senior people to look at the whole issue of professionalizing internal communication. And they wanted to start an association and they wanted to start um, vocational qualifications so that it was part of the professionalization. There would be, you know, as if you become a, a chartered engineer or whatever, you, you go through qualifications. And that was what they were keen to do. But it was clear they were all in, in large organizations. None of them was had any of the infrastructure to create a, an association. So they came to, I was at the time, I, I went back to the Industrial Society in 1989, and I was there, at this stage in 1990, whenever it was, I was head of, um, what was it called? Communication, Employee Relations and Communications Training and Advisory Service. And, um, so they came to me and said, would, would we be interested in, as it were, housing this thing? So we got a grant from the DTI, bless them, to look at it. And we launched, it was then called the Employee Communication Association, which we launched in, I suppose, 95, 96, something like that. It took a while because the whole business about getting, you know, getting the research, getting the money, doing the research to find out whether there was a demand for it and so forth. And um, and we ran events and and a newsletter and stuff for um, internal communicators. And Pat was the one who was particularly keen on the professional qualification, and she was much involved at the time with the NVQs, um, and uh, that was her initial idea. And we then did some research. I had. I think I'm trying to think when this was. Anyway, we did some research, which showed that people didn't want an NVQ and they thought NVQs were for hairdressers and not for professionals. And what they wanted was some sort of university accredited qualification. Mm. Um, and then I was lucky enough, I had, I had a, a wonderful colleague called Susan Morgan, who was able really to devote herself pretty full time for quite a while to mm. doing the research to work out what, I think you were involved a bit with that research. I was as well, yeah. And Pat was involved with it to, to research into what, what the, was needed. what should be in it as it were. Yeah. And also um, we went around various universities to find a home to, to, to run this quali qualification from. So that was a, a lot of work that was done from about seven, 90, six, seven onwards, and we actually found Kingston and got it through, God bless Pat, who went through all the bureaucracy of getting a course approved. Um, and we finally launched it in 2000, I think. It was 2000, yeah. 2000. The initial launch. With Pat as the director, uh, yeah. who'd done most of the very detailed research and work into what was, what was, what the content needed to be. Hmm. Yeah. And then to sort of take the, the story forward a bit, because I got involved. Yeah, it was probably it was the I don't know, it was it was the early 90s. I was involved, but certainly not in that really embryonic phase. Um and I was involved in the um, the um, employee commu um, communication association, etc., and and also, as Jenny said, with some of the thinking around the diploma. Um, and then, you know, sort of as and I spoke on the diploma as you did, Jenny, and as we all, all sorts of, um, of of colleagues in the profession generally did as well. Um, and then I think it was in um, 
2005 that um, Pat sort of took a back seat and I took over as director of the um, the diploma and with um, various colleagues, including Jenny, sort of running different um, different modules on it. And you know, there was a lot of demand for it. I mean, people were really keen on the idea of um, getting a, just being able to really know why things work and having that confidence to really be able to advocate effectively for internal communication and also to get these various light bulb moments, which people might not have realised they were going to get about. And actually, there's this and, you know, sort of really expanding their thinking about internal communication generally. And you know, sort of, I think it was then the next milestone was really after 2008, 2009, wasn't it, Jen? It was 2008, the, there was the financial crisis and internal communication started mm -hmm. to really go up the management agenda at that point. The value of it started to be really seen. I think increasingly by organisations because of the maelstrom that that, that organisations had been through in the aftermath of that, and it was then that we realised actually, you know, the demand on internal communicate senior internal communication people is growing. And so actually what we need to do is to develop what was the postgrad diploma and actually make it into a full master's. And the work started on that, you know, sort of about 2009, 2010. I, like Jen, I'm a little bit hazy on the, um, <laughs> the numbers. And we launched it uh, probably a a year, a couple of years later, it always takes a while to um, launch anything in a university, as you will be only too well aware, because there is quite a process involved. And it was my pleasure to um, to lead the, um, the 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 work on that um, the the second time around. Yeah. Internal communication has been going on for quite a while before uh, the professionalisation and the qualifications. So yes. how do you feel that people did kind of gain the skills that they were using in those jobs uh, before the 90s then? Uh, kind of, where do people learn these skills? Uh, I think I think they learned their skills at work um, through and, and Liz's career, I suspect, is quite typical. Um, and so they're transferable skills from what they were doing before, whether that was in communication. Some of them came from HR and came from very much a sort of union, union communication basis, and also communicating a lot of the stuff that ends up getting communicated in organizations is HR based. Is it, you know, what's the new appraisal system look like? Uh, how do we, how's the pay pay system work? How are you going to who how are you going to work out who gets a bonus this year? All, all of the sort of stuff that people really care about that is in HR's territory, mm. you've got communicators specialising in that coming out of HR as, as well. So I think a lot of the skills they learned on the job and then they learned it so that Liz then was able to teach a whole lot of people who worked for her, who'd gained from her skills. So I think the first generation, as it were, picked it up from the various things they might have done before. And then by the time you're getting to the late 80s you're starting to get professionals who are able to uh, teach people yeah. from their own experience yeah. it wasn't just wasn't just um, um, working it out yeah and I'd um, add to that because there was the HR route but I think the corporate communication route was also a big route for that was sort of your route, wasn't it? That's yeah, what I exactly. About coming from communications exactly. was the main but route. I just, yeah. you know, just to sort of give a, a more balanced picture yeah. about where people were coming from. Yeah. And again, you know, there's a whole set of skills that come through that and um, that, that, that then inform internal communication. And of course, it is such a broad 
beast, really, because when you think about what communicators are focusing on now, so much of it is around, you know, there's the, you know, there is that making sure that you've got the internal external alignment, but the whole importance of change and communicating change and really thinking through you know, how people are likely to respond to change and how do we therefore really make sure that that process is being managed and communicated in the most effective way. And then the whole drive for employee engagement and of course employee voice is a really fundamental part of that so you know there's still that the the, the, the different you know the HR sort of basis remains important I think but so does the you know the, the more pure sort of comm side of it um and there's kind of a melding of the two and with a number of other disciplines thrown in mm. you know so, um, and also to return to your to your question, apart from the skills side, there's also where do they get the knowledge from? Um, and again, some of that came from their previous, um, where they'd come from, whether that was from the corporate comms side or HR or, or wherever they came from. I think there was also, there was a, a huge rise from the early 70s onwards of conferences and and um, where which I, were very well attended, and where people got to hear how other organisations had tackled these things, and 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 knowledge about what what you might do, and publications coming starting to come out from from the early seventies. You've got some of John Adair's books on on communication, John Garnett's books, and then um, so and the, and publications from. The, the associations, the Employee Communication Association had a pretty scrappy little newsletter, but the IOIC has tended to have rather better, um, as you'd expect from their antecedents, rather better um, house newspapers, a very good one now. So I think there was, and there were people like, what were they called? Mel, Melcrum, were they Melcrum, called? Melcrum, yeah. Um, which was an organisation that, that built itself completely on, on knowledge of an internal communication was one of their big yeah. topic areas. And you've got well, the consultants uh, starting to produce books as well, which was a sort of way of selling their, selling their wares and absolutely. proving well, was, the knowledge yeah. that they had. There was also, I mean, because the Industrial Society did also run a, a, a whole range of training programs and put out um, various different publications. Yes, lots of publications that. and lots of conferences. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but then there was also um, Smythe Dorwood Lambert were very influential in the 90s. They were a, um, a consultancy um, led by John Smythe. Um, and I, I can remember going on on training courses of, of theirs, which were were really good as well. So, yeah, there was various different things happening. But I think there was also an enormous amount of learning on the job mm. going on. Yeah. Oh, very good. And uh, one last thing, I guess we might think about now, having uh, looked a lot at the history, it's always good then to think about the future as well and where that's going. And uh, there's a clear kind of story then of professionalisation, I guess, over the last uh, 30 years in particular. So, uh, but presumably that you'd see that as not necessarily entirely completed yet. So where do you kind of see things going next and kind of the journey towards professionalising internal communication? Oh, my goodness me. Um, well, I think... Certainly, what's, what's starting to happen now is that the, the qualifications have helped the process of really establishing, you know, sort of clear standards, etc., within internal communication. And that was certainly one of the, the drivers initially. I think increasingly now, you know, sort of, that's all being codified as well. So, for example, a couple of years ago, I led a piece of work by the IOIC, for the IOIC, which was around developing the profession map, which really looked at, okay, so what are the things that people actually do as internal communication professionals at different levels 
in their career and then what are the skills and knowledge that are underneath that so that that you know so that there's a and and that's to sort of both help in really practical terms in um, for people's professional development, but also to sort of help make sure that there is a more of a common understanding of well, you know, the the various different elements of the role. Um, and certainly, as far I think you know, we are still in the process of becoming a profession um things are changing rapidly i think the qualifications themselves will continue to play a really important part in that and you know you referred to the sort of the pace of change and one of the things that the we do with the masters now and of course it's with solent these days um is we constantly are listening, you know, sort of both um, through IOIC, but also to our students themselves to really make sure that we're at the, we're really meeting the needs of where people are right now and, you know, sort of where they're anticipating being next and with all sorts of future challenges I mean I know in the next module um, we're just looking at the moment about how we're going to be tackling AI and you know thinking about the impact of that on internal communication and I have to say you know the the shape of the masters now is very very different to how it was you know when when it when the the postgrad diploma first started back in in 2000 um and i think our understanding of the our understanding of the depth of understanding that people need with about you know, fundamental things like sense making you know how do people make sense of the world itself the need to really be able to understand you know culture at a real you know quite a, a a depth and how that drives people in different ways you know the complexity of organizations you know i think as as internal communication people continue to have more influence so the the kind of the the depth and breadth of their worldview and their understanding needs to really be keeping pace with that and the the need to both be really tuned in to what you know senior management within an organization uh you know sort of needing in terms of 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 support but also really to get a depth of understanding of the different groups and people within organizations because really the the role of communication is yeah, sometimes i've described it as being a bit like a bridge in terms of making those connections with a foundation needed on either side you know so you've got senior management on one side and you know people within organizations you know the employees on the other actually it's more like spaghetti junction these days <laughs> because of the level of connectivity that's needed as well but our role is increasingly just to be facilitating that because organizations are moving faster knowledge working is growing more and more and so that need to be facilitating collaboration i think is is growing in a way that it that's that is increasingly important to organizations. Mm -hmm. That's a long and probably not very coherent answer to your question. Jenny, you are thinking, I can tell. So you have mm -hmm. things to say. Yeah, do you have some other thoughts then? Well, I don't really. Um, I'm 
I'm not so much involved with it now. I'm sort of retired, so I'm not doing as much work as I was. I think, and I agree with the themes that Liz was talking about. I think, uh, I think there there are two interesting challenges for internal communicators. One of which is the which Liz alluded to, which is the the um, shifting boundaries of what is what's inside an organisation, what isn't. So yeah. the, the the whole business of contractors, subcontractors, you know, to what extent am I part of Solent University? I get sort of bits and pieces of their communication. That, that Those whole boundaries are very um, challenging for internal communicators and thinking through those, how those relationships might best work. And I think the other element is to do with how young people um, take in information differently, mm. communicate differently, and I think the, the the millennial generation, it's quite difficult for people of my age almost to imagine how different they are in their needs for um, how communication needs to work for them, mm. and managing the the as we said the five generations in the workplace, which I don't think has made that much difference until now. But I have a feeling this that that, that it might start to now with younger people. Which again, I guess, goes back to this theme of to be effective, what we need to do is to listen. You know, if mm. that's like a really core competency, that ability to listen. I guess some of the underlying principles behind it are kind of staying the same, but what that actually means in practice uh, keeps changing. That brings us to the end of the podcast. Thanks once again to my guests, Jenny Davenport and Liz Cochran. And thank you listeners for tuning in to the sixth episode of the History of Internal Communication podcast. Join us again next month when we'll be speaking to the IC consultant, Rachel Miller, who most of you will know through her website, All Things IC, and her podcast, Candid Comms. Until then, check out our website, www.historyofinternalcoms.org where you will find historical articles and our latest blog post, in which we reveal a 1923 magazine article from the CIPD's predecessor, which talks about giving voice to employees a whole century ago. I look forward to you joining us again in July.